everyone, we continue our read-through of the New Testament. Today we are in John chapter 8. John chapter 8 proves to us to be a little bit difficult in its opening, primarily as we look to the very end of chapter 7, verse 53, through the 11th verse of chapter 8 in this story of the woman caught in adultery, also known as the pericope adulteri. Now, many of you, if you have any kind of modern version of the text, you'll see that likely there in your Bible, it is either set in brackets, usually double brackets, or in the footnotes, and it'll say something like, the earliest manuscripts do not include this portion of the text. And the reason for this is that most New Testament scholars do not think that this was a part of the Gospel of John when it was written, that this was a a later edition. Um, For instance, uh, Bruce Metzger, probably one of the world's greatest authorities on the text, uh, says that the evidence for the non-Johannine or non-John origin of the pericope of the adulteress is overwhelming. Leon Morris says the textual evidence makes it impossible to hold that this section is an authentic part of the original gospel. And Andreas Kostenberg says that this represents overwhelming evidence that the section is non-Johannine. So, you know, I, I actually think these men are right. Um, and this gives us a chance to spend a little time in our, in our discussion day, in our overview of the chapter as we read through, uh, to, to do something called textual criticism, right? And, and it's important to us. And so we're going gonna to spend some time giving some reasons that these scholars give for why they believe that the woman caught in adultery was not an original part of John's gospel. And, and then we'll give some general thoughts about the science of textual criticism that helps us make sense of those arguments. So uh, the, the first is, is that the evidence goes something like this, right? The, the story is missing from every Greek manuscript of John before the 5th century. Secondly, all the earliest church fathers omit this passage when commenting on John and go directly from John 7.52 to John 8.12. And so that all of the church fathers that have commented on the Gospel of John uh, remarkably don't mention this at all. In fact, the text flows very nicely from verse 52 of chapter 7 to John 8.12, right? And so this is almost seems like this was just a total addition that just pops in there almost out of nowhere. Fourthly, there is not a single Eastern church father that cites the passage before the 10th century when dealing with this gospel. And when the story starts to appear in manuscript copies of the Gospel of John, it actually shows up in three different places. Uh, here, uh, after John chapter seven, after John chapter seven verse thirty-six, after John chapter seven verse forty-four, and again after John chapter twenty-one verse twenty-five, and in one manuscript of Luke, it shows up. So this thing is kind of bounced around all over the place, and its style and vocabulary is more unlike the rest of John's gospel than any other paragraph in the gospel account. Now, saying all that assumes a lot of facts that many of us just don't have at our f- fingertips, but um, this is a a very important reality of what the scholarship is doing as they actively work through the ancient languages and provide and do the work of textual criticism. Now, the New Testament that we know was originally written in Greek, and the first printed Greek New Testament that came off the printing press was published by Erasmus in 1516, and it turned the world upside down. I think a really good glimpse of that period would be to read David Daniel's uh, biography of William Tyndale. 
So, for 1,500 years, the manuscripts of the biblical books were passed down to us through handwritten copies. And this is how we have access to the actual words that the New Testament writers wrote with their very hands. None of those first original manuscripts is known to exist, which is probably just as well, since we would probably turn them into idols and charge money for people to come worship and look at them. So, the books of the New Testament were preserved for us by faithful, hard-working copyists. And some of these copies were in script called uncials, referring to the manuscripts with all capital Greek letters, and others were in a script called minuscule, which were smaller manuscripts with small Greek letters. Um, a smaller number were called uh, papyri because they are very early and written on special paper, like the material made from the papyrus plant that was prevalent in the Nile Delta. And then one last group of manuscripts is the lectionaries, which were collections of text for reading in public worshiping. Now, this is why this is all amazing, right? The abundance of these manuscripts of the New Testament, or parts of the New Testament, as compared to the number of manuscripts for all the other ancient works is simply staggering. There are 10 existing manuscripts of Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, composed between 58 and 50 BC. There are 20 manuscripts of Livy's Roman history, written roughly during the time when Jesus was alive. Only two manuscripts exist for Tacitus' histories and the annals, which were composed around AD 100, one from the 9th and one from the 11th century. And there are only eight manuscripts of the history of Thucydides, who lived 460 to 400 BC. Now, compare those numbers with the manuscripts and partial manuscripts for the New Testament. These numbers are from the Institute for New Testament Textual Research in Münster, Germany, which is the most authoritative collection of such data in the world. There are 322 uncial texts, 2,907 minuscule texts, 2,444 lectionary portions, and 127 papyri for a total of 5,801 manuscripts. These are all handwritten copies of the New Testament or parts of the New Testament preserved in libraries around the world and now captured electronically. There is no other ancient book that comes close to this kind of wealth of diverse preservation. And what that wealth does is it creates problems and solutions at the same time. These copies do not all agree on what the wording was in the original manuscripts. So the, the, word, so the more manuscripts you have, the more variations you will find. And on the other hand, the more manuscripts you have, the more, you con the more control you have over which readings are the original ones. The more manuscripts you have, the more variations you find, and yet the more they tend to be self-correcting. For example, if you had only two ancient manuscripts of the Gospel of John, one had the story of the woman taken in adultery and the other doesn't, it would be very hard to choose which one was right. But if you had a hundred manuscripts of John, even though you, find, you may find more variations, you will be able to tell by the number and age and geographical diversity of the manuscripts whether the story was originally there or not. And this is what the science of textual criticism has done with hundreds of variations in the manuscripts. I like the way the FF Bruce puts it. He says, it's the great number of manuscripts. If the great number of manuscripts increases the number of scribal errors, it increases proportionately the means of correcting such errors so that the margin of doubt left in the process of recovering the exact original wording is in truth remarkably small. But what is most significant for the reliability and authority of the New Testament is that the, t the variations that textual critics are unsure of are not the kind that would change any Christian doctrine. For example, in our passage from John 7, 53-11, no truth that this gospel teaches is changed by omitting the story. 
Bruce says that the variant readings about which any doubt remains among textual critics of the New Testament affects no material question of historic fact of the Christian faith and practice. Nothing on this score has changed in the last generation. No matter who tries to attack Scripture, Bart Ehrman, and so many others, nevertheless, none of these variations that have been found and shown do anything to undermine the consistent teaching of the text. This is so important for us. Because the textual, textual criticism is not something that should scare us or, call it, or cause to undermine the authority of the text, but actually supports it. It greatly supports the reality that when we come to the Scriptures, we can look at them with full confidence, knowing with absolute transparency what was there and what likely was not. And this is so, so important. So what, what, what should we do with this, right? What do we do with this story? Now, both Don Carson and Bruce Metzger, those scholars who don't think this was original to the text, actually believe that this story probably really happened. In other words, they think that this was a real event from Jesus' life and a story which circulated regarding Jesus within the oral tradition of the church. And likely when someone came back to this, came back to the, the, the scriptures, they were trying to find a place in order to put this within the text. This, this, this reality of the oral tradition of this story that Jesus had done with a woman called an adultery. And they were finding merely places to try to plug it in where it fit. Nevertheless, I, I think that very much about this story, regardless of whether or not it was original to the text or not, is not in any way shocking to what we would find Jesus doing. So let's read it and then just make a few comments on it. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and brought them and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. How? Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Well, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The most remarkable point in this story is that Jesus exalts himself above the law of Moses, changes its appointed punishment, and reestablishes righteousness on the foundation of grace. I don't doubt that this is why the story was preserved. It's an amazing story. And let me show you where I, I, I think that lesson comes from and is echoed throughout the rest of the New Testament. The woman that is caught in adultery is brought to Jesus. In verses 4 and 5, the scribes and Pharisees put Jesus to the test. Now, we've seen this before, right? This has been happening throughout it. This, there is a clear ring of truth of, the pro, of these Pharisees trying to put Jesus to the test. So that I'm not shocked at all if this indeed was the case. And they say, teacher, this woman's been caught in the, the act of adultery, and the law of Moses commanded us to stole such a woman, so what do you say? Now, this is a blatant test to see if Jesus will contradict the law. 
Now the law said, if a man is found lying with the wife of another woman, or wife of another man, both of them shall die. It's Deuteronomy 22. Now there is already something fishing going on here that the woman has been brought forward. There is no such thing as an, as adultery where only one party is guilty. But there she is, and no man. So how committed are these scribes and Pharisees really to the law? Or is the law merely a pretext for the prejudice against Jesus? Verse 6 makes explicit what their motives were. And so we don't expect a great deal of justice. This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. In other words, they're using her. They're, they're, they're using her and they're using the law to get rid of who they see as the troublemaker. So in verse 7, Jesus says, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, of course, that won't work as a basis for social justice. No criminals would be brought to justice if judges had to be sinless. That's why I said Jesus is going to reestablish righteousness. He's going to do it on the foundation of grace. For now, there is zero grace, zero humility, zero compassion, which means there's zero law-keeping. Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus standing against the Pharisees' view of the law and saying, in effect, go and learn actually what it means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Or, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, or you are angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well. In other words, the law is fulfilled in one word. Love your neighbor as you love yourself, Galatians 5, right? So Jesus forced them to expose their own misuse of the law. They all walked away. The point is not that judges and executioners must be sinless. The point is that righteousness and justice should be founded on a gracious spirit. And if it's not, what you get is the heartless hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And that's the point throughout the Gospels, not just here. When they are all gone, Jesus ends the story, saying, Woman, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Not, neither do I condemn you, so it doesn't matter if you live any way you want or if you go commit adultery. Rather, I am reestablishing righteousness in your life. And for the Pharisees, if they will have it, on the basis of an experience of grace, don't commit adultery anymore. Not mainly because you fear stoning, but because you have met God and you've been rescued by His grace, saved by grace. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that transformed lives begin with an act of grace on the part of God. When God extends grace, it should lead to an act of transformed life that is met by holiness and righteousness. Sin no more. And whether or not this this story was true to the text, the, the themes and the message of this story are indeed reflected throughout the New Testament in absolutely clear and authoritative sections. So I believe that this story happened. I believe it was part of the oral tradition. I don't believe it was meant to be here in this part. I think it was later added. Nevertheless, I think the truths that permeate in it are clearly articulated by the authority of the whole testimony of Scripture. And as such, we should hold them fast. That we, because we have been met by an act of grace by God, we should believe of Him and sin no more. Live a life of holiness and righteousness in light of the grace we've received by Him. Let's quickly read through the rest of the chapter. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from or where I am going. 
You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two men is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them, I am going away and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself since he says, Where am I going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below and I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? And Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say to you about, uh, say about you, and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Okay, so Jesus here is teaching on the reality that he is the light of the world. In Jesus' times, candles were used as a part of the celebration of the Feast of Booths. And during this feast, the rock that provided water in the wilderness and the pillar of fire that provided light and guidance were being remembered. The rock pointed to Jesus, and he also is the light to which the pillar of fire as a type pointed. And since God is light, Jesus' words amount to a claim of deity again. Once this I am points back to Exodus 3.14. Right? So he begins to lay out to them and with the Pharisees going back and forth the reality that they have constantly misunderstood his testimony, but that his testimony is true because it has come from his Father. Since Father is his witness, Christ's testimony is legally acceptable. In any case, one who has the witness of God needs nothing more. Now, the Pharisees misunderstood Jesus' claims as a reference to his physical father. They think he's talking about Joseph here. And they may have been eager to challenge him as a child born out of wedlock. And so in speaking of his father, however, Jesus was not talking about Joseph, but about God. And knowledge of the father can only come through the son. That, that's so clear from the gospel of John, that in order to know the father, you must know the son. And apart from the son, you cannot know the father or his will in any way. And the only way, Jesus says here, right? Jesus, after speaking of his death and resurrection, makes it clear that there are only two destinies of humanity either salvation or judgment. And that is based upon one single point. Do you believe in Him? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you trust in Him? Is your life a life of repentant faith in Christ and Christ alone? If so, then your destiny is sure. But if not, uh, if not, your destiny is sure judgment. So one is of sure salvation, those who believe, and one who one is of sure judgment, those who don't. He then kind of refers to his his crucifixion when he says when you lift it up the son of man you will know that i am he and i do nothing on my own authority the picture here is clearly the reality that he is going to be faithful in surrendering to the will of his father the will of his father is that he would die for his sheep and not lose one of them that he would die in the place of sinners and that they would be redeemed in 
because of his sacrificial death in their places, he would give his life a ransom for many. And all those who would believe in him would receive the glorious ransoms and realities of that salvation. True believers are those who will abide in his word. And perseverance distinguishes those who are truly born of God. Those who believe or those who will remain in faith as they have looked to the light of the world and be liberated by its darkness. Verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of, my, of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God, this is not what Abraham did. You are doing what your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he who sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Okay, we'll stop there. This is heavy here, right? So Jesus is talking about how the reality that he is the truth. He's brought the truth and the truth will set them free. They will be set free from the bondage of sin, the bondage of their sin. Only the truth of Christ can set them free from that. Holding to the teaching of Christ, who is the truth, leads one to the truth that sets a person free from slavery. And this slavery is not Egyptian slavery, Roman slavery. This is the worst slavery of all, slavery to sin. Salvation is not obtained by intellectual knowledge as the Gnostics imagined, but by a vital relationship with Jesus Christ, a deep knowledge of who he is, a saving knowledge of who he is. And these Pharisees totally don't get this. They think, well, we've never been slaved to anybody, right? And Jesus says, no, you are a slave. You're a slave to sin. You're a slave to sin. Everyone who commits sin is a slave. So that puts us all in slavery. This describes the deep gravity of sin, the predicament of humanity under it. His hearers did not understand the freedom he offered them as they did not understand the bondage they were in. But if the Son sets you free, right, this picture of regeneration by the Holy Spirit, then you will be free indeed. Jesus is not speaking of political freedom or merely freedom by which we are relieved from physical bondage. True freedom is the freedom to serve and worship God, to fulfill the purpose of those specially created in God's image. And sin deprives us us of this fulfillment because sin clouds our mind, degrades our feelings, and enslaves our will. This is what is called total depravity. And its only remedy is the grace of God and spiritual rebirth found in Jesus Christ. Once again, Jesus goes and pulls out their, their, their Abrahamic offspring. 
He knows that they are physical offspring, but here he's talking about spiritual fatherhood. He says, you're not of your father, Abram, because if you were, you would do what Abraham did. But Abraham believed the word of God, and yet they do not. The word of God is literally right there before them, walking incarnate. God himself in the flesh amongst them, and they reject him and seek to kill him. Right? See, I, I think when they said here that we were not born of sexual immorality, we have one father, even God, I think that was a bit of a slight at Jesus. I think they were accusing him of being uh, of having an, a legitimate birth himself. But Jesus makes very clear here, and I think this is where he comes back with the harshness of his words. You are of your father, the devil. This is not ad hominem. This was true. The relationship of truth and righteousness has been prominent in this gospel. And people love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. A frightful contrast is apparent here. There are just two options for fatherhood, God or Satan. By God's grace, Abraham had walked in the way of faith and obedience. But those who rejected Jesus were doing the opposite. Sinners to desire to do what is evil. And only a supernatural act of grace can redirect a person's will to desire the good. And our, our fatherhood, who our father is, is based upon the attributes revealed in our life. Whose image do we reflect? They seek to kill him. And, that, and what is their father the devil? He is a murderer and a liar from the beginning. Among all the sins that could be mentioned as a characteristic of Satan, murder and lying are singled out. Lying because it is direct opposition of the truth, which they are rejecting right now. And murder because they desire to kill Jesus. Satan contrasts sharply with Jesus, who is the truth and the life, and he is a murderer and a liar. Right? And so he says, hey, which one are you going to convict me of sin? I hear all of these accusations, but no one can convict Jesus of sin or prove any charges against him. Why? Because he's free of all sin. He is holy, innocent, and unstained, separated from Caesar, uh, from sinners, always doing what pleases the fathers. And so no charge can be brought against him. And so here he makes it clear, you do not hear because you are not from God. If you were of God, you'd be able to hear God. They need the ears to hear, and only the Spirit can give it. Verse 48 to the end of the chapter. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? (laughs) Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now, we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. And if I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Wow. The word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Here, they begin by just constantly slandering Jesus. One, they call him a Samaritan. Then he's demon-possessed, right? This is what they're trying to do. They are blaspheming the Holy Spirit by trying to slander the person of Jesus. And Jesus makes clear, right, that if anyone keeps his word, they'll never see death. They'll never be eternally separated from God. But they can't do it. They can't hear. They rejected it. 
And they say, are you greater than our father Abraham? Right? Abraham and the prophets, great as they were in history of redemption, could not take away death. Only Christ has triumphed over the grave. And Jesus says something very powerful here about Abraham. He says that Abraham saw Christ's day and embraced in faith the many promises given to him by God, promises that demanded the coming of Christ to be fulfilled. And since the context of the discussion has been Satan as a murderer and Jesus as one whose death delivers from, from death, it may have special reverence to God providing the ram as a substitute when Abraham was prepared to sacrifice Isaac. This statement shows clearly that even in the Old Testament times, believers were saved through faith in Christ, presented to them in the foreshadowing given by God to reveal his redemptive plan. And, and, the, and the Pharisees go, what? You're not even 50 years old. Jesus was closer to 30. Uh, and there's a, how in the world could you possibly have seen Abraham? And then this powerful line, before Abraham was, I am. This is a clear reference to Jesus' eternal preexistence. Since this is an attribute of God alone, this text is a forceful statement of Jesus' deity. The present tense of the verb suggests the eternal present of God's eternity. I am, once again, utilizing the absolute clear divine name of Yahweh of Exodus 3.14. And we know, we know that this was a claim to deity. Why? Because what's the very next step? They picked up stones. Why would they do that? Because they considered such a statement a claim of blasphemy. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying when he said, before Abraham was, I am. And they sought to stone him. Jesus is putting forth every amount of light that he could possible. And you can see just how much they love the darkness. Oh, how what a powerful text John chapter 8 is. And it reminds us of one very important thing. Apart from the grace of God, we could not see Him. We could not know Him. We could not love Him. We could not be, we could not be transformed to live for Him. So praise be to God for His amazing grace to reveal to us His perfect, eternal Son. God bless.